and welcome back to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante. And for the third time in a row, we have Dr. Nathan with us. We're going... I feel so honored. And we're glad to have you here. We're excited. We were doing a little pre-show conversation, and Nathan was about ready to jump through the through the headsets. He was so excited. And uh, I might have told him actively to shut up so we can get started. <laughs> But this is great because we've been we've been hanging out in the woods for like two episodes, and now, now we're going to come right out in the open and say, okay, let's have a frank uh, hot, hot dog, a discussion about what all this means for how we're eating. For the record, for once, I'm not fasted before an episode filming, so. Nice. So this is going to be interesting. This will be interesting to say the least. So I'm not going to want to bite a buffalo after this filming for once. <laughs> <laughs> I also had a very large breakfast. So. Oh, well, and uh, conversely, I'm the one fasting until noon. So <laughs> we, we've uh, taken this and turned it on his head. It's the weekend. And, yeah, it's the weekend. It's good. And <clears throat> so I hate the word diet. I, I really do. I, it's I think a bad it's a connotation. poor connotation. It, it really doesn't make sense in the way we're talking about it, um, because diet really shouldn't be what we think about our food, right? Right. In in fact, I so coming from a different side of it, I actually really like the word diet. I hate how Americans use it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, because what the diet is the sum total of the things that you ingest. It, it's your eating pattern. However, the word has transformed into like this weird protocol regimented disciplinarian thing. But right. really, like when we talk about like what's your dog's diet, we're just trying to figure out what we feed the dog. It's, it has no connotation. But the minute we talk about humans, all of a sudden diet becomes interwoven, whether it's at the surface psychology or somewhere deeper, with almost like a, like a religious system. Like uh, which, which dietary god do you worship? Yeah, you know, it could be an <laughs> exactly. action diet. It could be a South exactly. Beach diet. It could be a Dash diet, Mediterranean diet, whatever it may be. I pray to and, the altar and... of meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, the traditional sacrifices were just a preparation for a barbecue anyway. So I, I mean, Jewish temple, barbecue pit, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when, when we talk about dieting, you, you look at the popular literature out there and everyone says, you should do my diet. Mine is the only go- one that's going to work for you. Everything else th- out there is just going to fail miserably. But that's really not accurate either. I mean, everyone Absolutely is. not. <laughs> what makes that inaccurate, Dr. Nathan? Um, the, the same reason that thermodynamics tells us that calories are not equivalent Yes, the, the amount of energy, there is that amount of energy, a thousand cal- kilocalories of fat versus a thousand kilocalories of sugar versus a thousand kilocalories of protein. The issue is that, you know, those aren't broken down the same way by, by your body. And then between individuals, the systems to break each of those down or to use any energy source is also different. And it's influenced by how much sleep the person is getting, what their microbiome is, um, what their thyroid is doing. Um, you know, what other foods they ate with it. So between, you know, within their own system um, and then matched against somebody else, a a diet then should be a very personal thing based on um, how that individual feels. Are are they optimally functioning with the food they're eating? And and I, I don't think anybody would like disagree with the fact that let's say I give somebody 
here, drink um, Coca-Cola all day, every day. And then they might feel great when they're drinking it. But at the end of the day, you end up with like obesity and metabolic syndrome in most people. And yeah, there's going to be that like one random person that's like skinny on Coca-Cola. Um, but, <laughs> but like person I said, probably the, has type 1 diabetes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's so much variation within humans, and even even in um, like my version of enzymes, there's going to be you know individual amino acid differences that could affect the function of the enzyme itself. Um, and we know that because everybody's body goes through like mutations like all the time um, between generations. And, you know, some of the mutations don't do anything. Some of them do do things. Some of them make enzymes work better. Some of them make them work worse. Um, so it's really impossible to say everybody should follow the keto diet. Everybody should follow follow the Mediterranean diet. And, and I think that sort of like folklore, I'm going to use that word here in our culture sort of comes from the fact that we have a very large population. It's very, um, I'm not going to say homogenized, but it's very mixed. Um, a lot of different people. And so any one diet that gets put out there, quote unquote diet, um, any one diet that gets put out there, uh, you're going to find a quorum of people that it works well for. And then, you know, good marketing goes out in the public. Look, it worked for all these people. It will work for you, too. And that's just I mean, it's just not true. Well, and that that, that variation is is interesting because I'm largely Nordic in ancestry. Uh, Norwegian, Swedish, and then uh, mix into the Anglo-Saxon there. I wasn't from the Mediterranean, and so my genetics aren't attuned to that. Not only that, you're in Florida, we're in Texas. Our microbiomes are going to vary just by what uh, our localized environment is. And so Absolutely. it can it makes sense that what you have available, your gut should be attuned to what you have available, not to just some more of a generic um, grouping of foods. Exactly. In regards to what uh, Dr. Hirschberger mentioned about that whole different enzymes, different inputs thing, I, I remember I didn't go to med school with y'all. So if, if I don't know what you guys were trained with during first year, but I remember like first year biochemistry, we were learning about the various enzyme systems and how to metabolize protein. And then we were tested on the various enzyme mutations that make people unable to eat very specific things. Like uh, if you guys look at the nutrition label in your, uh, grab, grab any random boxed food in your mm -hmm. fridge right now. Mm -hmm. And you look at the nutrition label and they'll tell you whether or not there's phenylalanine in it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the reason for that is some folks have the misfortune of not having the enzyme for phenylalanine. And if they eat it, they kind of get extremely sick. And if they eat it too much and they don't correct for that issue, they actually don't make it past childhood. Right. Exactly. Right. Which is a yeah. very you know dramatic version of what we're talking about here. At the third standard deviation away from normal, we have folks who, if they eat this, they will die. And then creeping back from there, we have folks where... Look, some folks can tolerate some foods better than others, and I mean tolerate in the mm -hmm. broadest sense possible. Sure. We have plenty of folks that don't tolerate milk proteins, specifically casein, and their tolerance of the casein varies from person to person, and it also varies from milk to milk. They can't tolerate cows, but they can tolerate goat or sheep. Absolutely. Um, I, I look at it this way, and this is I'm going to bring up this word that we hear all the time. Well, just eat it in moderation. and. <laughs> And I, I can't stand that word. I feel like that word is used when somebody doesn't know what they're talking about. And I don't care if you're a PhD, if you're an MD, if you're a DO, if you're a person off the street, if you're saying, oh, it's just in moderation, please stop talking. 
That's how I usually feel yeah, when I hear just, it. Well, well, the whole body well, exactly. of, what does that even sure. mean? Well, what does that mean? How do you define moderation? Exactly. Well, let me give you an example of how not to define it. Um, take breaking down of alcohol. We know that some of our, our Asian friends, they, um, they are unable to process alcohol because they, they have a defunct um, uh, alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme, right? So moderation right, right. to that person is going to be different than moderation to me. So like, they're like a half a glass of wine and I'm like, I'm not going to really admit to how much is mine. So <laughs> you know, the point is moderation again is another word that's, that's different for different people. So, you know, it's, it, it's just moderation came about because I think it's people just threw up their hands and went, Oh, just eat it in moderation. You can have a little bit of sugar. Well, one person is going to say, well, I think a two liter, bottle of Pepsi is moderation. And then some person is going to be like, I think having no liquid sugars is moderation, you know? So, so I don't, that's why I don't like the word. I just substitute sugar with cocaine and see how the conversation sounds. (laughs) Yeah. Have a little snort here and there. That's in moderation once a day. (laughs) Rolling bones. The osteopathic podcast does not endorse the use of cocaine (laughs) or any other controlled substances. (laughs) We're just making a point. (laughs) So, okay. So, Oh man, with 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 all the variation from person to person and diet to diet and food source to food source, how do we go about this then? If we can't say just eat in moderation, because we we obviously aren't able to do that in a generic term, how do we go about finding what's good for us and on an individual level to eat? That's a tough question to answer, but I think what we can do is look at it from sort of what are some uh, of the the big ideas that sort of encompass everyone. And so if you're just Mm -hmm. talking about something like adiposity or storage of fat, we know you need insulin to store fat. And so if you want to get rid of that fat storage, you have to be in a low insulin state. And this is why the keto diet is like so like popular right now because there's a lot of people that have done a very good job at storing fat. And so like they go on this keto diet and all of a sudden their body's like, yay, I can get rid of this fat. And that, that, so that's one of the overarching ideas is you need a low insulin environment to get rid of fat in your body. Um, but at the same time, like if you're going to build muscle, right, you actually do need a little bit of carb because it um, potentiates the system that turns on to build protein. So should you be in a low insulin state all the time? And the answer is, well, I think it depends on what your goals are, right? And this is where the personalization comes in. If you're only trying to be skinny fat, meaning like a really wispy body and you just want to get rid of all the fat on it, then sure, eat keto all the time, all day, right? (laughs) Bacon every day, all day. (laughs) Exactly. But if you want to build muscle, you're going to have to go through times where you need a certain amount of protein um, a little bit of carb, and that's totally fine. And as a matter of fact, it's completely appropriate. Um, I think I was talking to you about, I was watching that show, um, Down to Earth with Zac Efron, because of course I would be watching that show. And uh, of course, <laughs> Zac Efron is beautiful. It's perfectly okay. No, I totally love it. Um, <laughs> but they went to, where was it? Sardinia. Um, and they, they, they were talking about, oh, they, these people live to like over a hundred. And I, I think, there's multi-influence about why these people live like way over a hundred. I know there's stories of, you know, people that were like dying here and they went back home there and they like lived for another 40 years or something like that. Um, but one of the, the things they talked about was they were eating a low protein diet there. And I went, well, what are you, what are you calling low? Protein? Okay. What, what does that mean? What do you mean by <laughs> low protein? Right. And, um, 
And so they started talking and said, well, you know, like, like around 50 grams of protein. The scientist was literally saying 50 to 60 grams of protein a day. And that's not really a small amount. Um, and I don't <laughs> oh. necessarily, and, and they're talking about like 50 grams of like meat protein a day. You know, that doesn't include like the protein right. that would be in vegetables and beans and that kind of stuff. Um, Just to get some context, the RDA back in the 90s for protein intake in America was like 30 grams. So it's nearly double that. Yeah. And, and what they probably weren't telling you on the show is these people are getting more sleep uh-huh. and they're living in, in a more restful environment, less stress. And they're probably pretty well hydrated too. Yes, and they also drink wine every day. So there we go. <laughs> so the, the point is, they, there's a lot of things that influence their their longevity or their good health. But they they're pointing out in the show that oh, they eat a low protein diet. And you know, Zach and his guru friend, I can't remember his name right now because I just watched the episode one time. But he's like, see, and we tell all these people in America eat a high protein diet. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Um, f- 60 grams of protein is a lot for me a day to do that. Yeah. So I was like, um, okay. So that's, again, that's one of those words like, oh, high this, low that, moderate this. And it's those words that I think confuse everybody. But, but back to the thing is they're, they're in this, this world where they're, they're um, living to a hundred are eating, you know, 60 grams of protein and they're getting enough of this, this one amino acid leucine that you need um, to turn on the mTOR system to make, muscle, you need about two grams of it um, at one time and preferably like within an hour of starting resistance exercise. But, you know, they're doing that. They're not eating vegetarian or vegan per se. Um, So they're eating protein and they're eating some carb there, but they're also have a a lifestyle that sort of supports, um, uh, you know, their their lifestyle is really good. Basically, it's what I'm trying to say They're You know, and we're not just looking at longevity, like they have a very good social social uh, um, support system there. So they're going through these times where they're, you know, eating protein and they're eating carbon. They're doing all these different things. So so they're eating a varied diet that contains yeah. a wide variety of foods and they have a social structure to help reduce the stressors on yeah. their body. So they're, they're not, they're not experiencing high cortisol levels. They're not experiencing prolonged elevation of insulin. Exactly. So they're basically taking care of their body. Exactly. And, and I think a very good way. And one thing that uh, I have noticed with American culture as of late is we've kind of undercut that social uh, connection, that that uh, network of support such that we, we don't have something like that to rely on here. And the odd thing is that actually matters because um, if this is not intuitive, a question should be like, wait, wait, this is the diet episode. Why are we talking about social systems? But they are not necessarily not necessarily separable concepts, especially in the context of what the underlying idea is. The way you eat ought to be commensurate with the environment you're in. Yes. And the cool glitch about humans is we are actually a semi-tournament, semi-social species. As in, in our hardwiring, in our cognitive systems. We actually factor human interaction in the same category as we do trees. <laughs> humans in our system is actually part of the social environment. Yes. As in the humans we're around is a determinant of what our diet ought to be at the level of our programming, which is pretty insanely dope. It's it's kind of what allowed us to progress in the way that we have because we're not the strongest animal out there. We're not the fastest animal out there. We're not the meanest animal out there. But if you put a bunch of us together, we we uh, combine all of those attributes into a pretty successful organism. Yeah. There was a, there's a professor in NYU. His name's uh, 
Dr. Jonathan Haidt, he referred to humans as chimpanzees with a with a hive mind overlay. <laughs> so we've got this social aspect and bringing it back into diet. So this group of folks we were talking about, they had this whole lifestyle that was very well balanced rather than imbalanced. Is that essentially kind of what I'm picking up on what you're reporting there? Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I got too. Um, and it wasn't just this show that, that I've, I've read about this, seen about this. Um, you know, they, they have a very active lifestyle. There was a guy that was 95 in this show or 99, something like that. He was near a hundred and he was literally, he got dressed in his tux every day and he walked down like all of these steps to the bar. I'm not even kidding. And had a very large glass of wine every day. And I was like, good for you. You're my hero. And then, um, then he walks all the way back up these steps. So he's like totally active. Um, they're very social. Um, their, their diet is very, um, it's, it's very cultural for them and, and they do very well. Um, I mean, my gosh, a 99 year old or whatever, that's walking up and down these steps in, in, in these little towns, these old Italian towns. It was just, just amazing. Now that's a guy, that's a guy I can appreciate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what can we take away from that? Like, so, cause I, I, I can imagine this becoming, got it. So everybody should be walking down a big flight of steps to drink some wine. Well, every yeah, day, right. right. So we talk about low insulin environment, um, right? So w what is this man doing? Um, he's walking up and down very difficult steps to the point where Zac Efron was even like huffing and puffing on the way back up, right? So, but this man is doing it. He does it every day. And one of the things our muscles are really good at is using glucose without needing insulin. So he's basically keeping his body in a low insulin environment just by the amount of activity he's doing. And then, um, you know, just, just by their diet. Yeah. They're eating some bread, but they're not eating a, a ton of bread. If they eat sweets, they had, and you know, they, they went for it. They, they showed this like honey and almond thing that looked really good by the way. And, um, but they ate it. They <laughs> it weren't, they weren't afraid of it, you know, but they didn't sit down and eat that for the entire day. You know, there was a specific bread that they make, um, that, that they all eat. It, it had a specific purpose. And, yeah. and, you know, it sounds like from what you're describing, they were producing much of their own food. They were processing their own food. They were cooking their own food. And so they could at least control the ingredients that were going in. Absolutely. They made a point to say that this was like non-GMO food. They grew it all themselves. Even the flour, it, 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 they were using very um, uh, traditional like flours and grains. Uh, so it's it was it's it's food that has not been processed at all, basically. Okay, so how can we take that example and translate it over to um, a modern society where most everything comes in a box, most everything comes highly processed, and trying to find things that are unprocessed for some reason, paradoxically, are more expensive. Yeah, that's um. That's a real unfortunate part of uh, our economy right now. I will say, though, that um, one of the, and I don't want to say good things that came out of the pandemic, but there are some good things, is that I've, I've found um, it, it's isolated a lot of people, but there are also other groups of people that have stayed home and like learned to cook and learned to bake. And, and um, I know a lot of people that are, are cooking at home and eating like really healthy food. Some of them are, you know, some people did get the COVID-10 because they sat around, you know, drinking. And then there's other people that ended up losing weight um, because they were cooking at home and they weren't eating restaurant food all the time because they couldn't go out to a restaurant. So, um, well, I mean, 
I'll elaborate on that a little bit. I have um, so in my practice, I'm actually the uh, the primary like metabolic health lifestyle weight loss guy in our group, and a not insignificant portion of my patients who have actually been classically struggling to do the right thing as far as their diet goes. When this pandemic happened, they were kind of in the situation where it was, well, I guess I have no choice now because the restaurant's closed. Just like you said, I have gotten more patients off of insulin in this past two months than I have in the entire, what, nine months of my time before that, purely because of the dietary challenge kind of forcing adequate change. Dude, I got folks who were like on maybe 80, 90, 100 units of insulin Q daily, oh and they are off of it purely because of one desperation, but that desperation forced adequate adaptation. They're like dropping pounds off their meds, and they're healthy mm -hmm. for it. Like it, it works. And they probably feel better too. Well, they had to learn how to cook. It's yeah. the issue. <laughs> they, had, they actually had to learn how to make do with what they had. Fun fact, the difference between diabetes insipidus and diabetes mellitus used to be the taste. It's true. Doctors used to taste urine to diagnose diabetes mellitus. Back in 1674, this English doctor named Thomas Willis described diabetic urine as wonderfully sweet as if it were imbued with honey or sugar. All right, Dr. Dante, so you brought up a very important point. Um, one of the benefits of COVID-19 has been the way your patients have been changing how they've been eating. And I'm, I'm very intrigued because, you know, I'm going to be Dr. Dante's uh, colleague here in the next few weeks. So I'm very interested in, in how this has worked for him in, in the clinic we, we work in, or I'll be working in with him. So tell us a little bit what this looks like. Sure. And before going further, let me just... Uh, lay something out real quick. This pandemic's a goddamn nightmare. However, it doesn't yeah. change the fact that pockets of people have found very, very real silver linings within this insane calamity. So mm -hmm. I don't want this to take away from how genuinely, genuinely calamitous this entire environment is. But at the same time, I don't want to do dishonor to the folks who have taken this insanity and done good by it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So just to set that clear, because Separate from this podcast, I have another fight trying to show folks how actually crazy this has all become. And I don't want to do a disservice to either either mission. You know what I mean? No, I think mm -hmm. I think it, it 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 says something to sort of the human spirit that, you know, even even in major tragedy, there's there you know, there there will be some good things that come out out, exactly. out of it. And but right. that doesn't diminish the fact that it was a freaking tragedy. Exactly. So I just want to make and sure because... And continues to be a, a freaking tragedy. Right. Because this is generically a kind of a fun episode, but um, mm -hmm. I want to make it very clear. This is this this good thing is coming within the context of significant darkness, you know? So with those disclaimers, <laughs> what ended up happening with several of my patients are... Um, so look, I, I deal with some pretty sick folks. They're on tremendous amounts of medications. They're on tremendous... Um, they're very dependent on the collective medical system, whether it's through pharmacology or logistic support, just to exist. And with all the stresses and strains that have come through because of COVID, what ended up happening was when this started to, to get real, I had to tell many of them, like some version of, look, I can't guarantee that the system is going to be here for you right now. God forbid shortages happen. God forbid we lose access to insulin, all this stuff. I need you guys 
in a situation where you can handle a storm. Do you understand me? And a lot of them were kind of like, you know, appropriately afraid, appropriately confused. And I'm like, look, we just ran out of Pepsid. That sounds really basic. But the fact that we ran out of Pepsid in this region, what else, what's going to happen next? Mm -hmm. What's going to be missing next? We lost NP thyroid, which is a thyroid medicine, which again, it's mission critical for some folks to have NP thyroid. And I'm like, look, we, I don't have a move for you if these meds are gone and you need them. It's, we got to prepare in advance. So the one that was most obvious to address was the insulin demands because um, we've had some issues with power and storage right. in, uh, in the Fort Worth region, such that my patients either uh, don't have access to adequate power or refrigeration. And for those who don't know, insulin needs to be kept in storage. You can't just leave it out there. So if you don't have the means to store the medicine that sustains your life critical functions, your solutions are figure out how to not need the medicine anymore, or secure storage. And if you're on Medicaid with $7 to spend every month, you don't have the means to secure storage. It's fix it or get out. And by that, I mean die. I don't want these people dying, obviously. And as the supplies diminish of the insulin, the prices tend to go up as well. Right. So thankfully, enough of them heeded what I said and started going, all right, doc, so what's the plan? How do I get off this thing? And that's where many of them started signing on board to either some combination of an intermittent fasting diet or a ketogenic diet. It really wasn't about weight loss initially. It was about making sure that they minimize their medicine needs so that they can weather a storm. But several families uh, that I'm taking care of decided that they're going to take what money they have, invest it in learning how to cook, secure cheap produce within what they can find around here, uh, reasonable uh, calorie sources or fuel sources, I should say. And then they, they ran with it. And over the course of about two months, there was this one family I'm taking care of. Their son um, needed about 80 units of Lantus Q daily, plus his uh, Novolog, which is the fast-acting insulin. And I told him, look, just report back to me. It's fine. Um, try this out. I know he's autistic. I know he has limitations. If he'll take this food, great. If not, we'll figure it out. So right. they go like very deep into like Jason Fung-style um intermittent fasting and like uh, just YouTube cookbook stuff to see what they can do. Mm-hmm. And the kid loved it. Thank God. And then, um, <laughs> That's great news. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first week um, they reported back to me, the blood sugars and they were like, yeah, look, he's bottoming out in like the nineties doc. I need to change something. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Drop his insulin, cut it down. We cut it down by 10 units at a time until at present date, he's actually off of insulin, which is pretty dope considering he was at 80. Um, and the, the, the amazing thing was he started it's losing weight, which is amazing. phenomenal because this kid was markedly obese. Um, oh my gosh, know, it's, it's, it's surprising. It's a, it's, it's a beautifully uncommon success story. It's, yeah. it's, it's a great story. If not for it being true, yeah, it's, I'd it's, be looking at this like this is insane. <laughs> but Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you're, you're getting rid of the underlying metabolic disorders and the symptoms start to clear up, including the weight. Right. But what happened is, oddly enough, his parents... He himself cannot speak on his own behalf because of his um, cognitive uh, deficits. So mm-hmm. the parents take care of him. The mom's in charge of the diet. The dad uh, takes care of the finances, that type of relationship. The mother um, started asking me, like, Doc, my kid is losing a lot of weight on this diet, and he's look- like he's happy. Is it okay for me to do this too? And <laughs> keep in mind, most of our interactions are telecommunication right now because of the COVID thing. So I'm like, ma'am, I don't know your mm-hmm. full story. Um, I need you to sign on to be my patient properly to f- even figure that out in any way that is not me just guessing. But I explained to her some basic ideas mm-hmm. about how food works, just 
what does insulin do? What does what does eating various types of food sources do? She goes, well, you know what? I'll, I'll conservatively try some stuff. We'll see how it goes. She calls me back in about two weeks, and she goes, all right, so I didn't do the intermittent fasting thing that my son has to do, but my husband and I started doing the keto thing. We are, we're all eating the same food. The only difference is my son only eats one meal versus the rest of us eat two or three. I'm like, all right, how's it going? And then she goes, well, my husband had to call his primary to fix his meds because his sugar started dropping and I lost like four pounds. And I'm like, okay, four pounds doesn't really matter right now. It's been two weeks. It's probably water weight. Yeah. But honestly, sincerely good for you. That's mm-hmm. a big deal. Keep at it. Um, mm-hmm. All this to say Huge that, deal. again, through, through very dark times, um, out of fear of hurting their kid because of supply chain issues, they adapted. Now that... I don't have to worry about insulin as much, especially with that new bill that just got signed like yesterday. Right. Um, for the record, mm-hmm. insulin, uh, Medicare insulin, the price got slashed by about two thirds as of last night. That's that's a big deal. That's huge. Um, and that that calms my heart down so much because that's that much less I have to worry about people not being able to afford their basic meds. But at the same time, the kid doesn't need any insulin anymore, which is amazing. That's On the amazing. other hand, I had a patient in a similar scenario. He's in a very different situation where he's a diabetic who's also an athlete. He's a cyclist. And um, look, he picked up on these same behaviors. He, he, without me prompting him, wanted to try to get off these meds. And good for him. He's, his insulin demand has gone down tremendously. Um, he's in his uh, mid-60s. He likes to cycle like 20 miles a day or something. I, I forget the exact numbers, but he's, he's, he's a good athlete. And he started dropping. Mm-hmm. In fact, he actually um, uh, syncopized, as in lost consciousness, during one of his rides. And then that's how I started speaking with him. Like, he goes, Doc, what's going on? Why am I, why am I fainting? What's happening here? And I'm like, all right, so just walk me through your day. What's, what's your process? I find out about his athletic patterns. And I'm like, so you're telling me you go for like at minimum a 20-mile bike ride in the Texas heat every day? He goes, yep. What do you eat, man? And then he shows me his diet, and it's straight, straight protein and fat. And I'm like, Uh-oh. that's dope. Um, bro, I need you to like, have you, have you ever seen goo? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, for marathon runners, and I, I introduced the concept. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but I'm a diabetic. I can't touch that stuff. I'm like, yeah, you're a diabetic who also cycles like this in the Texas heat. Um, you need something here. And we compromised. I told him like, look, man, mm-hmm. 30 grams, try 30 grams, see what happens. And then turns out that wasn't enough for him. Like he, he felt good. He wasn't fainting, but he would get so weak he couldn't finish his rides. So he'd be stranded in the middle of the Trinity River. Like, help me, man. And I'm like, all right, screw it. Try 60. So we brought him up to 60 grams of carbohydrates, which is, it's still pretty low in the context of what most Americans eat. But for him, this is like 60 grams. Oh my God, I'm going to die. But I'm like, <laughs> just, just try it, man. See what happens. And lo and behold, he can perform his rides. Like his times are good. His intensity, because he has little like biometric things to see how he's doing, mm-hmm. are showing good numbers, and his in- his sugars are no worse for the wear for it, and that's pretty cool, because um, he's training in the middle of the apocalypse. It's kind of dope, but I'm like, I can't have <laughs> you painting in the middle of a park in a Texas heat when the hospitals are full. Yeah, yeah, and then you're uh, at higher uh, risk for other stuff. <laughs> right, but it's 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 amazing because I'm watching humans try to adapt to. Basically, what? how do you stay alive and stay healthy when the medical system is technically compromised? And some folks are figuring it out, some folks are not. But 
the heart of it was they realized how much their food matters because you can't just block it with medicines anymore. No, and that, that goes back to you can't outrun a bad diet. It's diet first and then everything else will follow. You can't you can't for your entire life eat so poorly or eat in a way that that keeps you, you know, fatigued, always storing fat, unable to use it for energy, not building muscle or maintaining muscle. And then on top of it, like different tissues in the body use different macronutrients for energy, like like take um the CNS. Um there's some neurons that use glucose. Um, some some parts of them use lactate, surprisingly, and then um, the the support cells actually prefer fat um, to break down for energy, which is really cool. Um, and then muscles, their their preferred source, the 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 long haul muscles, they they actually do really well breaking down fat for long sustained energy, and they use sugar for short bursts. Um, so it it it's not just one food all the time is gonna be is gonna be the perfect thing. So like in your your patient that was cycling you know it sounds like what's happening is he he ends up you know using up any any bit of like reserved energy that he has and yeah he does need carbohydrate because he's 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 exercising so much that his body only has one choice and that's to break down his muscles to use for energy and and that that doesn't work out so well he's super fatigued so of course when he adds in that carb which is really necessary um he isn't as fatigued. You you do need you do need some carb that that potentiates the muscle building system. It also says don't break down my muscles, don't break down those proteins, and use them for other other uh, 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 processes in the body. The, the muscles are a huge store of amino acids, and muscle tissue is very very energy um, uh, dependent to maintain. So that's the first thing. If you need amino acids, like let's say you're right. sick, right? You need to make immunoglobulins, which is just like long strings of amino acids, right? You need to start pumping those out at, at high levels. Well, the first thing that's going to happen is your body's going to go, well, we're sick. We don't need to climb up rocks and like climb up trees and things like that. So let's break down our, our muscles. Let's use this huge sink of, of amino acids and, and, and break that down. So yeah, adding the carbon for him was totally appropriate and, and he has to do it. Otherwise his body is going to start catabolizing his muscles and that's not what he wants to do. Oddly enough, he was vaguely Cushingoid in his, not, not in his metabolic health, but in his appearance when I met him. Uh, I've only known him for a couple months now, but. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this mm -hmm. varies for him. And, you know, I've read, and I wanted to, to get you guys, your thoughts on this uh, ratio. Some people will say. A ratio of carb to protein intake of two to one, something like that. What are your thoughts about those ratios that some people talk about? Those are silly. I think those are those work for some people, and like I said, you're going to find a quorum of people that any one diet works for. But I think it's such an individualized thing. Some people do better on more protein in their diet than carbs. Some people do actually better on. A little bit more carb in the diet than protein and it doesn't mean they're bad or one diet is worse than the it's other but it's, it's it's very difficult to say oh eat this ratio there are some specific things you need like to turn on the mTOR system for that for that short time to build muscle you do need that two, two to 2.5 grams of leucine and in, in the, a good ratio is like 30 gram of carb to 20 grams of amino acids that includes essential amino acids which your body cannot make you have to get right. them from your environment and two two grams of that should be like leucine and then um, isoleucine and valine should be about one gram like a two one one ratio of that so those kind of little things just to turn on that that one system 
is right, but to say to base your whole diet around that, I don't think is not. Is, it's not going to. Wise. It's not going to work for everyone. Although I, w- I will let you know that every time I eat bacon, I feel better. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh well, I had two pieces this morning, and and I, I'm going to tell you. That made my whole day. <laughs> You're good. You are good. I was going to let y'all know, I, I basically live, I, I might personally fund half of the sockeye salmon stock in this country. <laughs> you nice. need to dig a, uh, <laughs> a a lake out in your backyard and just stock it with sockeye. Look, I'm from an island people, all right, man? I got to eat fish. <laughs> tell you what, you eat the fish, I'll eat the totally. bacon and steaks. We're good. There we okay. go. <laughs> so... I think I think the better question to ask everyone is what is what is your goal with your diet, right? Um, because I I'm not going to down veganism. It's not something that's personally right for me. Um, I don't necessarily think it's it's a, a, a safely healthy diet unless you're doing it exactly right. But definitely that's your choice if you're doing it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you take into account you do still need. Um, a certain amount of protein and you have to you have to get essential amino acids and sometimes it's hard to do that in sort of the food proportions that you are allowed being vegan I actually just had a patient um, yesterday and um, she's lovely lady she does yoga every single day and she has like these pains in her forearms and I finally asked her I said you're a vegan aren't you and she said yes and I said how much protein are you eating and that's sort of like um, a very non-specific question right I just wanted to see what she would say and uh, you know she kind of tells me and I and I go okay are you eating this type of protein she goes well I'm eating pea protein okay okay show it to me and so we went through it and I looked at it and I went you're not getting enough of this to, to build muscle. So we, I sat down with her, we pulled up Amazon and we pulled up, you know, we found a vegan supplement and she goes, well, I hate protein supplements. So I was like, okay, would you, would you find a tablet? Right. And so we found this one that has, you know, she's going to eat whatever protein supplement she normally does, but she's just going to add these tablets in. And, and um, I think it's going to make a big difference for her. I think the reason she's having the pains is because her, her body literally cannot build the muscle because she's not giving it the proper nutrients to do that. So, um, like I said, diet's individualized, but if whatever your goal is, you need to, you know, sort of eat for that. But if, if um, like, let's say you have some, uh, some moral reason that you want to be vegan and that's wonderful. Um, you just, you do need to know these small things. Like you, you need this type of protein and you need B12. You, you're, I'm sorry, you're just not getting it from your diet right. if you're a vegan unless you're taking a supplement and supplementing is a very fine way to go. I encourage you to do that. I, what I do not encourage you to do is eat the dirt around plants thinking that you're <laughs> going to get B12 from that because you're not, um, no matter what's been said. Um, the animals that are, are, um, how do I put this? The mammals that are not ruminants, they get B12 from their diets because yeah. they eat poop. Yeah. And you yeah, don't well, do that anymore. We're not dung beetles. Yeah, obvious reason. I just want to, I want to elaborate that exact point a little bit because I remember the first time you and I had that conversation. Um, so yeah. Because the... I was shocked. I was like, wait, do people yes. actually and think this? The thing is, it actually comes from very reasonable assumptions with very specific data, data points missing, which ends up leading to that conclusion. What happened is, so it was uh, like human anthropology stuff. There's literature to show that humans got sufficient B12 from just foraging, essentially. Um, which, hey, fair enough. If that's what's out there, great. I don't know their methodologies enough to comment on it, but if that's accurate, then what else? So what ended up happening was 
it seems that we get sufficient B12 from the contaminants in our food. And it looked like, yeah, it's mostly dirt because we're picking stuff off from the ground. The big confounder was, yes, mm -hmm. we were getting it because the ground in this context is so fertile and filled with basically human and other uh, animal Excrement. species. Right. That yeah. It was the bacteria in the gut biomes of these various animals that fermented the thing to produce B12 that what we're eating. So great. Mm -hmm. Apparently, we can eat poop and get B12. The question then becomes... <laughs> is it still worth it to eat poop? Um, which it feels weird that I even have to say this, exactly. but um, <laughs> this is a really to good time to bring own, up the I idea of relative risks <laughs> and opportunity cost. <laughs> uh, and again, that's another one of my favorite topics. But So the idea is, look, you can get your B12 from eating poop. I'm not going to deny that. The trade-off is every time you eat poop, you run a risk of getting sick because it's poop. So the question becomes, is the benefit of eating is the benefit of getting B12 from poop sufficient to outweigh the benefit from it, uh, the, the risk of infection from eating poop? And just, I'm, I'm not even going to bother with the calculations here because that's one, it's an audio broadcast, and two, it's poop. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make it abundantly clear that uh, the chance of getting infection and the harms of doing infection, of, of receiving infection from eating poop, far outweighs the B12 supplementation you're going to get from eating said poop. So just either eat some meat or get a damn supplement. Well, there's nothing wrong with saying that uh, America or that humans have increased their lifespan because they're not eating poop anymore. I mean, hygiene did do a lot more good <laughs> than basic medicine. Once upon a time, we were dying of cholera because somebody shat in a well. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Exactly. They shat upstream, and everybody downstream got sick. Right, yeah. <laughs> but they had sufficient B12. Exactly, <laughs> that was the original B12 supplement right there. <laughs> yeah. But but it's important to lay that out because look, I, I I've met several Absolutely. folks who insist on that dirt phenomenon, and the dirt phenomenon is a thing, but it comes with so many caveats. Um, if you look at that data point in isolation, then it looks perfectly sufficient, and then you make your big intervention based on that tiny data point without capturing the grander context. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like um. Oh, you miss you see you see the trees you forget about the forest this isn't even that you saw one tree and didn't realize you're like in a biosphere <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> oh, that's quite the image oh yeah that's my soapbox so, so in reality there is no one size fits all there is no one not. diet for everyone we're really talking about finding the diet that helps your body perform at its best? How do you know you're performing at its best? Well, how do you feel when you're eating that diet? If you're feeling sluggish, run down, worn out, weak, tired, then maybe you need to start looking at some of the things that you're putting in to fuel your system, and maybe you're fueling it in inappropriate ratios. It also means you need performance parameters, because if the performance demand is, I work a nine-to-five desk job, I come home, watch some Netflix, maybe hang out with my wife and kid and do something, wake up the next morning, repeat times infinity until grave, then let's be honest, the performance demands are so low that you might not actually, you might not have enough stress in the system to even know what you need because the threshold is so far away from what you're doing with yourself that it's almost a non-issue. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like I have patients where this this gets pretty pretty nuanced and insane, but I have a couple of very high-speed individuals who cannot be on a statin purely because of, like, like put it on them, they get side effects, take them off it, they don't get side effects. But the side effects mm -hmm. aren't like myalgia and stuff. It's like, 
Yeah, when I'm on that medicine, I can't distinguish my targets in enough speed, and I end up like, I don't know, I'll accidentally shoot the wrong thing. Like, I'll miss a target. <laughs> and, like, this is a, this is a, this is a sharp shot, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, I didn't like it. I took it to starting out, and all of a sudden things are good. And I'm like, that's kind of weird, and I don't know how to play with that data. But then I've had enough folks who do those types of things come to me like, look, man, uh, my, my this and the other thing's messed up. My doc tried me on a statin. And uh, the minute I, like, within a week of me being on that, I can't perform the way I used to. And I'm like, that's really weird. What do you do exactly? And then I hear what they do with their bodies. And I'm like, got it. You're like, you're like the top 1.01 percentile of human performance. Crap. Um, for the context, statins have a lot of strange effects. One of them is they, different episode, different day. Point being, they can't tolerate being on a statin. And I'm like, look, Another man, favorite topic of mine, by the way. Exactly. We're going to trigger Hirschberger many times today. <laughs> but it's like, the, the idea was the same. What was happening was their, their previous mm-hmm. doc came to them from like a heart disease prevention standpoint. And I'm like, fair enough, man. If, if you want to protect your heart, but you can't be on this medicine, we kind of have to engineer a better solution for you because clearly you're not going to take that thing if lives mm-hmm. are on the line. But at right. the same time, you, sir, want to protect your heart. We need to go about this a different way altogether. And Absolutely. that kind of became a different discussion altogether. But it's because he has such a high demand system. How many folks are on a statin and they can't tell if it's good or bad for them? Because all because they they're do not doing anything that stresses their body. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Like my dad can't be on metoprolol and he has to climb high rise buildings on the regular because mm-hmm. he's an electrician. Metoprolol yeah. messes with his balance just enough, it'll kill him. Oh, that's not a good plan then. Yeah, that's not. That's, and, you know, my wife uh, was on metoprolol uh, as uh, she had an very early onset AFib when she was in her 20s. But she is also a performing arts uh, individual. She's a concert pianist. And she lost her ability to feel her music. And she hated the metoprolol because she couldn't feel her music anymore. And that affected the way her, her performances were going. And so she had mm-hmm. to get off of it. So there there have got to be other ways to, to do this. So in our remaining time, we don't have much time left, but uh, let's let's give our listeners... Uh, shall we call it, I don't even want to call it a recipe, just some, some basic uh, suggestions on general principles can, that are generally yeah, good for the majority of humans. For, for the majority of humans. Well, um, number one, I think we don't want to be in a high insulin environment all the time. I don't think that's healthy. Obviously, um, we have an epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes, and most of these people are insulin resistant, meaning they're in a high insulin environment all the time. So that needs to come down. So So a a diet that would give you that low state of insulin for a while, whether it's fasting or ketogenic diet, um, I'm going to use the word Atkins and I don't want people to throw stones at me, but um, like those, Uh, those all. I'm I'm okay with using Atkins. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. So the point is those, those are low insulin environment diets. And uh, some of them are eating protein all the time and some of them are not eating at all all the time. But the, the common thread between those is low insulin. And that's good for a, a, a time. Um, fasting is good. Fasting is very cultural. It's, it's, um, it has a lot of re- religious basis. It's very social, right, um, in, in many different um, cultures around the world. Um, fasting is a good thing. Um, going through those times when you are not eating, your body does something called cellular editing. Um, it gets rid of, uh, let's say, immune cells that were pumping out antibodies that you don't need right now. Um, so it stops doing that. 
Um, it gets rid of, it does something called autophagy, where it, it eats different organelles and cells and other cells are eaten up and recycled to do other things. So that's a good thing. It gives you a chance to use, use the fat that you've stored for energy. But should you fast all the time? No, the starvation experiments told us that that, that will make you, you know, the minute you start eating again, you're going to gain more weight than you originally had. So fasting over a very long period is, is also not good. And this is, please don't start using the word moderation here. Um, <laughs> so, so we're going to say calibrated. It's calibrated because it's, it's specific to everyone. Um, I know I, I, I can not eat for a whole day and I'm okay. Um, I like doing that sometimes. And then there's some days where I want to eat the whole day and that's also fine. Um, but you know, for, for me personally, you know, I, I like a more vegetable based diet with, you know, a really good quality protein. Um, and yes, the source of your protein matters. Um, you know, the, the type, you know, how the animal was raised and fed matters. We've talked about that. Um, and just a little bit of meat, a lot of vegetables. Um, and you know, I, I, I try to keep, you know, added sugars in my diet low. Um, and then there's sometimes I don't eat. So, I mean, it, it, like I said, it's, it's individualized, but the overarching things is you need to keep a low insulin environment. There's times that you shouldn't need to let your body edit out some, some of the things it doesn't need anymore. And then there's sometimes you need to refeast again. And it's that refeeding phase when, when you're adding back in a little bit of carb after you've like lifted, you know, weights or did resistance exercises, you need to do that, you know, because you need to maintain healthy bones, maintain healthy muscle weight. Actually, one of the things that predicts how long you will live. One of the tests that we do is this time get up and go test, right? And that's literally testing like how much muscle and balance control you have. And the people that can do that test because they have good muscular and balance control are the ones that live longer. Um, so m maintaining muscle mass is, is, a, is a great predictor of longevity. So you should be eating to maintain your muscle mass and ketogenic diet all the time is not eating to maintain your muscle mass. Let's play with if that, that a little makes bit, sense. actually, just because that, that brings up a really cool point. Again, speaking in broad generalizations mm -hmm. that are pragmatical, pragmatically useful. So mm -hmm. um, what I'm hearing is a low insulin diet for the most part with spikes of feasting, spikes of insulin, commensurate to uh, maintaining mass, commensurate to maintaining strength, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so in an environment that is comically inactive mm -hmm. what would be the recommendation then to make that make sense because if the sum total population is markedly couch potato like mm -hmm. how would that reflect in the dietary pattern or the behavioral pattern overall well that's that's a loaded question too kind of like a loaded baked potato honestly well, it is that sounds, like, that sounds I, like a loaded baked potato I, diet to me i have to present that though because that is if we normalize the environment that we're dealing with for many of our patients, that, that's mm -hmm. closer to their environment, right? Minimally yeah, exactly. active, highly sedentary, because the low insulin diet sounds like it's a good plan to cover the, the obesity aspect. But then now we need to figure out how to calibrate this weakness thing. Is that a dietary move? Is that an exercise move? Is it both? It's, it's a both move, actually. Ah. You, have to, you have to do resistance exercise. Um, actually the one thing that, that we, we talk about cardiovascular exercise and the one thing that actually makes your heart really fit is, is maintaining 
certain types of muscle fibers that you can only build by doing resistance exercises. And the reason it keeps you cardiovascularly fit is because those specific muscle fibers use oxygen in a more efficient way. So it lowers the oxygen demand on the heart by having this specific type of muscle that you build and maintain by doing resistance exercise. I, I, I asked for that explicitly just because the implication there is there's another part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. The diet is commensurate mm-hmm. to the behavior, to the to the uh, demand. But yeah, exactly. if the demand is consistently very low, and that's a pathology in and of itself, mm-hmm. then maybe the next discussion we have, maybe the next evolution of this idea is how one should acquire, how one should move. Which, hey, guess what? Absolutely. Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. This is an osteopathic podcast, I swear. We've talked about <laughs> a lot of non-bone-related things for the past couple mm-hmm, weeks. Right. but this matters because the like the limited view of what we do is we manipulate parts and make people move good. But um, one, that's a vast simplification. But two, the whole move parts move good. Now it's move parts move good. I'm deliberately butchering the grammar, by the way. Just let me, <laughs> let, let me have that. Yeah, we're, move we, parts yeah, we're move well. It. You know what I mean? And then um, I like move good. Exactly. There's there's a, there's a quippiness to it. But that means that the fuel source needs to be commensurate to the quality of the movement, which means we get back to we need to move better. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the broader sense. I, I think from a stepwise pattern where where this is taking us is once we've changed our fuel source, then we'll have more available energy. I do think that some of the reason so many people are so sedentary is because they're so tired. And the diet plays a significant role in that. Once you're able to adjust your diet and provide yourself with more energy, maybe you will get off the couch a little bit more frequently. Instead yeah. of watching Netflix, you'll be you'll be up and doing your exercising. Exactly. That's. I mean, we were talking about this. Was it two episodes ago? You know, mm-hmm. people are not people are um, uh, not overweight because they're lazy. It's actually the opposite. Many of them are are are. Um, Underfueled. Exactly. They're they're lazy because because of their diet. Um, not <laughs> they need, you know what I'm they saying. Need, yeah, they need 91 octane fuel and they're using diesel. Exactly. They're they're using the wrong. That fuels is a and really tired as a result. <laughs> Analogy actually, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So right for context, um, I just ate well, yesterday. I ate um, God, it must have been like three pounds of beef shawarma. Um, shawarma. That's a lot I of food. That. And um, I was. I was talking to to my wife like, man, this is is a lot of food. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to want to train tomorrow. So um, today I woke up and the first thing I wanted to do was go for a run with my dog with my kids strapped to my back. My kid weighs like almost 40 pounds now. And I'm not going to lie, the minute this broadcast ends, we're going on a bike ride. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to spend most of the afternoon like juggling kettlebells and or deadlifting or something just because there's this... I want to do stuff with the meat I ate because something about eating an animal gives me strength. Mm-hmm. That's half joking. I eat meat and want to lift things. So, <laughs> and I, I think you know, eat and lift, lift and eat, you know, doing those in combination mm-hmm. as, as well as being active, getting out and uh, using the metabolic processes that want to process the fuel. It, it really kind of goes hand in hand. Agreed. Agreed. They they do go hand in hand, but I mean, I, I you you have to eat in a way that you know makes you want to get up and do things, um, makes you want to get up and lift. So the diet 
and and the movement are intertwined. Absolutely. Well, and one one other thing I'd like to put out there, I like how we've talked about learning how to cook again. I I do think there's an uh, shall we say an epidemic of folks who don't know how to use the kitchen. And um, one thing that I did for for Christmas this year is uh, we homeschool our kids and we've got five of them. So there's a lot of homeschooling going on. One of the things that we decided to do was buy a set of Internet cooking classes so we can teach our kids how to cook for themselves. And I found it to be very engaging, uh, a great way to not just teach the kids, but to be able to eat and enjoy what I'm eating. So I don't need to just pour things out of a box. I can actually cook stuff from scratch and make it appetizing and make it healthy. Um, so I encourage anyone to do it. The, the course, and I'm going to give a shout out to this. This is not a paid or sponsored thing. I just love the course. It's, it's webcookingclasses.com. Uh, Chef Todd Moore does a great job. Again, he's not sponsoring this. This is just something I've used. But find a way to get yourself some education on how to prepare your food, and it'll make all the difference in the world in the end results. I'm just going to flex as a parent real quick. My two-and-a-half-year-old can make can make eggs. The trade-off yep. is shells. There's, there's a lot of eggshells in there. <laughs> yep. But he gets the idea. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, six-year-old just uh, pulled out the uh, induction cooktop we had just last week, pulled out a pan and started making – oh, they're great. And she started making scrambled eggs. I was like, hey, what you doing? She's like, I'm just making eggs. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, cool. just, just pick out the eggshells afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yep. Oh, man. Well, Dr. Nason, thanks again for coming on the show. Three episodes, all excellent. We're going to have you back on for more. And I would love uh, to. We'll just continue on with this – you guys think about what you eat think about how you move and it, it, it will make all the difference you'll feel better you'll look better you'll live longer in many cases and life will be better for you so thanks again for joining us on Rolling Bones the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your body your health and how to fix things again I'm your host Dr. James along with Dr. Dante and thanks again Dr. Nathan we'll talk to you soon have a good one guys Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rolling Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, 
Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.